Hello and welcome to Bite Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I'm Nick, your host. Today, we're going to be tackling a pretty big topic. <laughs> I think uh, maybe it's a little too ambitious, but I'd like to sketch out for you a brief history of the United States. Uh, I'm going to be talking about a few key time periods and giving you key points for each of these time periods. I've gone ahead and divided the history of the United States into 13 time periods that we're going to go through, and they are as follows. Early America, the American Revolution, Industrialization and Antebellum America, the Civil War, Reconstruction and the Indian Wars, the Gilded Age, World War I, the Roaring Twenties, the Great Depression, World War II, the Cold War, the 1990s, and the post-9-11 era. And before we start, a little disclaimer. This narrative will be told from a traditional perspective. It's important to note that while these events were taking place, there were what I like to call a series of parallel Americas that were happening. These include Native America, Black America, Female America, and Labor America. And these are um, distinct strains of history within American history and in a lot of the traditional narratives, a lot of the old textbooks, uh, maybe they don't get a lot of the attention they deserve. So let's go ahead and start with the earliest European settlements in the lands that would later be called the United States of America. Our story begins in the early 17th century, when settlers from England established colonies in the New World. You see, up until this point, uh, England had fallen behind in the colonial game. By the early 17th century, so the early 1600s, the Spanish had a vast empire in the New World, the Portuguese had colonies in Brazil and the Far East, and the French uh, were just in the process of exploring the St. Lawrence River Valley and establishing settlements there. The English, under King James, uh, decided to send a few people over, and these are going to be the two colonies you hear about uh, all the time in these history books and history courses. There was the colony of Jamestown and the colony of Plymouth. And it's sometimes easy when you think back to confuse these two, Jamestown was established uh, in Virginia, or what would later be Virginia, in 1607. And Plymouth was established in Massachusetts in 1620. The difference between these two is kind of the reason why they were established. Jamestown was primarily a money-making venture. They were exploring the new world to kind of try to find ways to make money for their investors back home. Whereas Plymouth, which was founded by the, the Pilgrims, uh, those colonies later became like the Puritan colonies, uh, that colony was founded for religious reasons. They were fleeing kind of religious persecution in England. Nonetheless, uh, eventually, after a few hard winters, they got their start and became uh, started to become self-sufficient economically with cash crops like tobacco, indigo, and cotton. This supported these, these early colonies. Uh, tobacco really took off. Uh, the colonists had been instructed how to grow it and smoke it by the natives. Although it's, uh, it's interesting that King James, uh, the guy behind this, 
when they brought him tobacco uh, history, sometimes they call him one of history's first anti-smoking advocates because he thought tobacco was, quote, a noxious weed. Anyway, the colonists often had conflicts with the local Native Americans and the French, who had colonies to the north in a region called New France. So a lot of the early U.S. colonies in the Northeast became known as New England, and north of them was New France. And just like Old England and Old France, they were fighting all the time. Some of these uh, colonial conflicts included Queen Anne's War and the French and Indian War. The French and Indian War is named after who the English uh, settlers were fighting, so the French and the Indians. It's basically the U.S. name for the uh, U.S. theater, the New World Theater of the Seven Years' War. There was a bigger, broader conflict going on at the time. It's called the Seven Years' War, and uh, that's still what it's called in Europe and oftentimes in Canada. But the U.S. theater of that war, where the English colonists were fighting the French colonists, and there were natives on both sides, was called the French and Indian War. This is also the war that is featured in the movie The Last Mohicans, which is based on a book. Um, lots of kinds of... It, it was a time of muskets and dark forests and drums and tomahawks and all that kind of stuff that's uh, described in the book. So why am I talking about the French and Indian War? It's because this colonial conflict, when all was said and done and the dust had settled, the French had lost, uh, even though the first four years or so of the war they were stomping all over the British in the New World. Um, in the end, at the Treaty of Paris in 1763, they came to an agreement with the British government, and as part of their surrender, they lost all of their colonies in New France. And these colonies in New France that were now under the British would form the nucleus of a country that came along later called Canada. But in any case, in New England, in the English colonies to the south, you have the years leading up to the American Revolution. See, what had happened was during the uh, colonial wars with the French, the American colonists time and time again pleaded the British government for support from the British Army and the Royal Navy. Well, the French and Indian War, i.e. the Seven Years' War, had cost a lot of money. So in the years after the war, the British government decided to start taxing the colonists with the reasoning that, well, we had to spend vast sums of money to protect you. So now we're going to try to get some of that money back by taxing you. And this didn't sit well with the Americans. Uh, after a series of acts that enraged them, uh, things like the Stamp Act or the Sugar Act, the colonists started to rebel against the British crown over issues like taxation, which we've talked about, uh, government representation and trade. And this came to a head in 1775 and the American Revolution eventually ended in 1783. It came to an end because the American colonists had extensive help from the French who wanted revenge for their defeat in the French and Indian War. So the French sent money, uh, military training, ammunition, the French fleet got involved, and it's just so interesting that a generation earlier, these same colonists had been fighting the French, but now they had a common enemy uh, in Great Britain. The United States of America was founded as a republic with a constitution. It had two chambers of Congress and a president. 
and it was uh, pretty much the first nation in modern history to do this. You see, at the time, all of the major powers of the world were still monarchies or, or uh, you know, despotic governments or empires or things of that nature. So it was very unusual in the modern time that this, this upstart country, America, comes along and, oh, hey, we're a republic, a government for the people, by the people, like all that stuff. Um, it kind of shocked a lot of the crowned heads of Europe. Critically, this is absolutely crucial. When the United States was founded, the institution of slavery was left intact. And this is going to be a big deal later. Uh, Thomas Jefferson is quoted as saying, um, slavery is like holding a wolf by the ears. Uh, you don't like it, but you don't dare let it go. So this will, this will have huge ramifications later. After the American Revolution, you start to have a time period of industrialization and eventually a period called Antebellum America, which is uh, America before the Civil War. It comes from the Latin ante, uh, before, meaning before, and bellum, meaning war. Uh, and this root word, bellum, war, you can still see in modern English words like bellicose or belligerent. During this time period, the new American states uh, expanded westward, and they started to develop infrastructure like railroads and canals, which allowed the powerful coastal colonies to start projecting their power inwards into the continent. Up until this point, really the only hope you had of traveling or transporting goods was either on the coast or by using rivers. Uh, roads were rare and primitive and often just muddy pits. Um, so the development of things like railroads and canals really went a long way towards America becoming self-sufficient and independent. Um, during this time period, slavery dies out gradually in the northern states while it booms in the south thanks to an invention called the cotton gin. You see, there was this guy called Eli Whitney, and he was a graduate of Yale. And in 1794, he patented a machine called the cotton gin. And uh, this has nothing to do with the gin that you drink. Uh, gin, in this respect, is short for engine. So it's the cotton engine. Up until this point, it had taken a slave hours and hours and hours to pick the seeds from cotton. And that's what this machine did through machine power. It, it separated the seeds from the cotton. So in the past, it might take a slave 8, 10, uh, 12 hours to separate you know, enough seeds to make a pound of cotton. Whitney's hand-cranked machine could remove the seeds from 50 pounds of cotton in a single day. And in a letter to his father, Whitney wrote, quote, One man and a horse will do more than 50 men with the old machines. Tis generally said by those who know anything about it that I shall make a fortune by it. So you can see uh, Whitney, you know, the importance of his machine was not lost on him. Later on, so, you know, we're jumping a little bit forward here uh, from the 1790s to there were a number of conflicts that during this period, the antebellum period, between free and slave states over the issue of slavery. War is avoided each time by the leaders coming to a compromise and or kicking the can down the road. But the, the, the three key kind of agreements in this time period are the Missouri Compromise, 1820, the Fugitive Slave Act, 1850, and the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854. 
So these were uh, attempts to kind of reconcile the issue of slavery to prevent conflict between the northern and southern states. So, for example, the Missouri Compromise in 1820 was um, there were powerful people in the south that wanted to extend the institution of slavery westward. And the Missouri Compromise was they drew a line going from east to west, heading westward onto the frontier. And they said, below this line, you can have slavery. And above it, you can't. Uh, Another thing was the Fugitive Slave Act, where slaves who were runaways from the south to the north, it made it... um, it was against the law to harbor them or help them, and you had to return them to their owners, and northern states had to accept the legal authority of southern slave hunters coming north to you know, recover their property as they saw it. So this angered a lot of northerners because they were saying things like, well, hey, southern states, you're always talking about how you don't like the federal government intruding on your state's rights, but you want the right to intrude on our state's rights by coming up, picking your slaves, and and punishing us if, if we try to help them. So this led to a lot of conflict. Um, also during this period, we're talking 1845 to 1849. There's an island across the sea called Ireland, and they were absolutely devastated by uh, something called Angurtamor. I, I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's Gaelic for the Great Hunger. You see, by this point, they were extremely poor, and the majority of their diet was from potatoes and milk. And the potato uh, crop failed. This period is called the Great Potato Famine. And a huge number of Irish fled to places like Canada, Australia, but especially the United States. And they were the first major wave of non-Protestant immigrants in America. Up until this point, the the vast majority of Americans, uh, white, Northern European, English-speaking Protestant and the Irish started to change the demographic makeup of the United States. In doing so, uh, they often came in conflict with African-Americans because they would compete for a lot of the same jobs, like the jobs at the very, very bottom. As the years went on and on and on in antebellum America, this issue of slavery just kept heating up and heating up and heating up. Uh, presidents like Pierce and Buchanan, uh, in my opinion, just kicked the can down the road until you had a man born in a log cabin, a lumberjack hero who taught himself the law named Abraham Lincoln. And he ran for election uh, in the election of 1860. And a lot of Southern states by this point were just so hot-headed, so dissatisfied with the federal government that they warned, hey, well, I don't know what we're gonna do if uh, Lincoln gets elected. And we're gonna look at that in a second. At this time, cotton was huge. I've heard certain historians compare cotton at the time You could compare it to oil now. It was just the lifeblood of the world economy because the primary industry of the Industrial Revolution, which was in full swing by the 1850s, 1860s, was textiles, especially in Great Britain. And they required a a huge amount of Southern cotton. Not to mention there were also local American textile manufacturers in the North that also demanded this cotton. 
It's here, the reason why I'm talking about Cotton so much, oh, and by the way, Cotton made many Southerners insanely wealthy. And actually prior to the Civil War, the highest concentrations of millionaires per county was not in a place like Massachusetts or New York. It was actually in the South, in states like Mississippi and Alabama and the Mississippi River Delta. It made certain people just insanely wealthy. And rather than invest a lot of their money in infrastructure or civil projects or even businesses, most of these uh, powerful slave owners used their profits and reinvested it to buy more and more slaves. So in the 1820s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, the South doubles down again, again, and again on slavery. They become more and more reliant on it, uh, entrenched in this uh, social structure where the goal of any you know gentleman or businessman is to make money off of cotton and slaves, to make more money, to buy more uh, slaves, to grow more cotton and get more land. Whereas the North was going in a different direction. They were getting into things like manufacturing, shipbuilding, uh, production of consumer goods. I mentioned earlier that uh, Abraham Lincoln came along and campaigned in the election of 1860. He was not even listed on the ballot in many southern states, but he was elected. And following his election, 11 southern states secede from the Union from January to May of 1861. This period of 1861 to 1865 is called the Civil War. Eleven southern states, when I say that number, initially it was a first wave of seven, uh, and they were in the Deep South. There were other states that still hadn't made up their mind, places like Tennessee and Virginia. But after Abraham Lincoln called for, uh, I believe it was 75,000 volunteers to put down the Southern Rebellion, that was the last straw for a lot of these states that weren't sure. But when all was said and done, there were 11 southern states. So why are there 13 stars on the Confederate flag? It's because there were two border states that they also claimed for the Confederacy. Uh, these were Kentucky and Missouri, but they never really had control of those states. That's just a little bit of trivia for you. The war raged on for four years and resulted in a Union victory. The power of the federal government is increased the South is left in ruins. Um, all of their slaves, uh, their, their biggest investment uh, of money and time and effort are now free. And these people are going to be looking for jobs and, and trying to start lives for themselves. And President Lincoln is assassinated April 14th, 1865. Conservative estimates for the number of war dead range from 620,000 to about 650,000. Another thing I'd like to say is the Union Army in some ways began to reflect the new America. During the war, 200,000 Germans fought in the Union Army, 180,000 African Americans, and 150,000 Irish. There were also smaller numbers of Italians, uh, Polish, um, people like that. There were, there were even in uh, certain units in the West, there were Hispanic Americans that were fighting and, and stuff like that. So you start to see the multicultural uh, face of the Union Army starts to reflect kind of what America is transforming into. The Civil War ended and the period immediately afterwards is called Reconstruction. This is when, uh, until 1877, the federal government attempted to reconstruct the South. African-Americans are empowered to vote and run for office. 
northern investors go to the south and pump money to try to uh, rebuild it, but also make money at the same time. So building things like, you know, uh, schools and factories and railroads and stuff like that. Many white southerners uh, resist this change. Uh, they don't like northerners coming down and, you know, in their eyes, telling them how to live. And, and they don't like that now they have to share power with African-Americans. So one of the things they do is they go and found a group called the Ku Klux Klan, which was founded in Tennessee uh, by a former Confederate general. Uh, a lot of the Southern politicians and journalists and stuff who sought to revert, reverse the, the social changes that were underway were called redeemers. They called themselves that because they, in their eyes, they thought they were you know, redeeming the South. Westward expansion during this time is fueled by cheap land and European immigration. White Americans come into conflict with uh, Plains and Western Native Americans, uh, tribes on the Plains, uh, like the Sioux and the Pawnee and the Crow. And then once you get west of that in places like Arizona with uh, tribes like the Apaches and the Navajo, these conflicts are called the Indian Wars. And the U.S. Army by this time had a great deal of training experience from the Civil War, but also huge surpluses of weapons that they can deploy against these native tribes. There's also a series of gold rushes in places like Nevada, Arizona, and Dakota Territory. And this further accelerates westward expansion. One of the earliest gold rushes was actually before the Civil War in California in 1849. And a lot of these miners were called 49ers. Um, in Dakota Territory in the 1880s, there was an area called the Black Hills where initially white settlers were not interested and it was uh, sacred to, I believe, the Dakota Sioux. But after a series of broken treaties, uh, Americans started just founding villages all over the Black Hills and digging for gold and, and it just uh, they just didn't listen to a lot of the rules that the Indian Bureau was putting down. Uh, the most famous of these settlements was called Deadwood, uh, and there's a great HBO series uh, about that town. After the Indian Wars, you have something called the Gilded Age. And what we're going to talk about now is the period from about the 1870s to the early 20th century. You see, the late 19th century uh, American economy saw a process of rapid, rapid industrialization and huge waves of immigration from uh, southeastern Europe. And up until this point, the majority of immigration from Europe had been from northern Europe, places like uh, Germany, Scandinavia, the British Isles, Ireland. But as you get into the late 19th century, you start to see more and more immigrants coming from southern and eastern Europe. So Russians and Poles or um, in terms of Southern Europe, Italians and Greeks, uh, stuff like that. The uh, period of the Gilded Age that we're talking about, um, like the 1880s, 1890s, also saw a lot of labor unrest. You start to see the development of the first workers' unions and railway strikes, and American workers start pushing for better working conditions, better working hours, uh, more representation, because there was just such a huge degree of inequality in terms of money and power during this period. One of the reasons why it's called the Gilded Age, gilded, the, the word gilded means something covered or lined in gold, uh, i.e. the pockets of these <laughs> early American businessmen. 
A lot of modern American monopolies get their start during this time period. The United States becomes a world industrial power during this time, and the production of coal and steel, which were the essentials, the kind of metric of your national economy during this period, grow by leaps and bounds. Also, critically, this is going to have huge effects in the next century, the 20th century, is that during this time period, oil becomes a major world resource. And wouldn't you know it, huge deposits are found in the United States of America, especially in places like Texas. And if you put this on top of the huge coal deposits that are found in um, what is now called coal country. So when you talk about American history and you talk about coal country, you're talking about Eastern Tennessee, Kentucky, uh, West Virginia, places like that. Well, in addition to all the oil people were finding and the previous gold rushes, well, now you're finding tons of coal. It just seems that America, the new United States, just has uh, a huge amount of every valuable resource known at the time. All right, well, that's all we're going to talk about today. Uh, I'm going to cut the story short because I realize this may have to be a multi-episode type of thing. But that's where I'm going to cut the story short today is the turn of the century. So you're going from the 19th century to the 20th century. And there's still so much to talk about. You know, World War I, America, you know, jumping onto the world stage as a result of that. The Roaring Twenties, the Jazzy, Prohibition, people making gin in their bathtubs. That's just great. The Great Depression, World War II, the Cold War, the 90s, post 9-11 era. I mean, if I tried to cover all of this today, it would just be insane. And um, I, don't, I don't know if I could hold your attention for that long. But uh I'd like to thank you so, so much for listening. And this has been Bite Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I was Nick, your host. Listener mail is welcome at our brand spanking new email address, Bite Sized History Podcast at gmail.com. All one word. Thank you so much for listening again. <laughs>